Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, our text will be verses 1 to 6. We're looking at this morning, Jesus once again before Pilate. Not only before Pilate, but before the crowds. We're really seeing much of the hypocrisy of, or we've been seeing much of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. We're seeing the wickedness of them. We're seeing all of this leading up to uh, Christ being crucified. You know, the past couple of weeks, especially being in chapter 18, looking at this whole trial that had occurred at the hands of the Jews, which was really no trial at all. It was more of a kangaroo court as they intended on putting him to death. And regardless of what the outcome would be from the witnesses or anything else, they were going to have what they desired, which was his condemnation. They had taken him to a number of different ones. They've taken him to Annas. They've taken him to Caiaphas. They're going to take him before Pilate. Pilate's going to send him to Herod. Herod's going to send him back to Pilate when you're putting all the gospel accounts together. And it's really Pilate who's making the effort in order to have Jesus released. It's Pilate, really, or you could look at the Romans themselves. But it's Pilate who is really making an effort here to release him to give him more of a fairer trial than what the Jews did. And throughout these couple of verses that we're going to go over today, we're going to see a number of different things of what Christ himself endured and the shame that he endured, the willingness of Christ to endure it. But we're seeing some other things too, looking at the beauty and the majesty of Christ and enduring all of this, but also seeing that as Pilate is appealing to the Jews and he is appealing to Their pity, really, when you're looking at this, nothing is going according to plan for him. Because when you're looking at when you're looking at Christ and you're looking at presenting him to other people, a lot of times what we end up trying to do is to pull on the heartstrings of people, of lost people when we're when we're appealing to them with the gospel. We want to tell them everything that Christ had endured and all of that, which is part of the gospel, yes. But the intent of what, is, what so often takes place is really pulling on the heartstrings. Let's, let's grab their emotions and let's, let's hope that by doing so, if we can cause some kind of an emotion in them, that they, they will call upon Christ in faith. They'll recognize who he is and, and recognize the, the grace that has been extended, all of that, which in and of itself accomplishes nothing. It is not enough to be sentimental in the gospel in order to try to get people to come to Christ because it doesn't work. Trying to appeal to the emotions of people with the gospel doesn't work. The only thing that will ever work is giving them an unadulterated gospel, the declaration of what Christ has done, who he is, and it is the spirit of God then that brings them to faith. Otherwise, What we will have is what we have here in this passage, which is greater anger and resentment and bitterness towards the glorious Christ. I pray that we would indeed give our attention to this passage and learn from that. It's so so human of us to try to appeal to someone's emotions, especially when we, we consider the importance of the gospel. 
we, we want to do anything we can in order to get them to call upon Christ. And there were former professors of ours who used to be in more of the, um, I, I guess, say Billy Graham camp as far as the, with the altar calls and that sort of thing at one time. And he had told us in class as well that, you know, he was really good getting people down to the altar. He could get them down there. By speaking the right things, he could get people down to pray the prayer. But then coming to realize that praying the prayer didn't do anything. Except perhaps make false converts and false professions of faith. What is needed is just to give them the plain truth of scripture and let the spirit of God do the work. Now, one thing that this does do is, as far as the believers are concerned, it does stir up in us greater emotions for Christ. We, we, we don't need our emotions tugged on in order to make us do something. We just need to hear the truth and the spirit of God testifying with what he has inspired rouses up those emotions in us so that we do have a greater adoration for Christ and we appreciate even more so what he has done for us. But when it comes to the unbeliever, Sentimentalism isn't going to work. It must be that we give them not being uh, abrasive or not being intentionally offensive, but we give them the gospel as it was intended to be and let the spirit of God do the work in the heart that which we cannot do. I pray that we see a number of these things in the passage today and be encouraged. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read verses 1 to 6. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the scripture. <clears throat> Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So then Jesus, so Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns in the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that Christ willingly endured all the humiliation and shame that we find in this passage in order to redeem us. Father, help us to understand what a great cost was paid that we may come into your presence. Teach us today and guide our thoughts and bless the preaching of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Since the Jews could not put anyone to death, at least in the way that they intended on Jesus dying, it was necessary that they take him to Pilate. We've seen the great hypocrisy of, of all these religious leaders as they take him to Pilate. They have, they have had this, this trial under the, the cover of night. They have had a unanimous decision in order to 
put him to death. They have brought forth false witnesses and they found out to be false. Everything that they've been doing thus far has been against their own laws. But in that they don't care because in the time in which he had come into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry is what is referred to. Since then they had decided they were going to find a way to put him to death. So they're doing whatever is necessary in order to make that happen. They had taken him to Annas. Perhaps they had taken him to Annas simply for the, the reason of gathering up the other members of the Sanhedrin in order to gather them together and have them ready for when Jesus would be led into the chambers. Caiaphas, puts him, or Caiaphas who is the high priest, who is not supposed to be leading anything of the charge in, in, in all the court proceedings, is the one who is asking the questions. He is the one who is helping to sway the people, which was against their law as well. We had talked about the, the interesting part of this whole trial of the Jews was is that they, they can't even condemn him. It's like, what can man do to God? They, they can't even do this right. So you see Christ, in, in one sense, having to help them in order to condemn him. Finally, the high priest says to Jesus, if you're the Christ, just tell us. And it's as if Jesus says, okay, you failed thus far. You can't even do this right. Let me help you. Yes. I am the Christ, the Son of God. You're going to see me sitting at the right hand. They tear their robes. They, they, they say, what say you? He deserves death. So now they're going to take him to Pilate. Pilate has examined Jesus, uh, the, the charge of him being a king. Jesus had said to Pilate, as far as his kingship is concerned, that his kingdom is not of this world, that if his kingdom were of this world, his servants would be fighting he had said to Pilate that he has come into the world for this reason, to testify of the truth. Uh, all of this dialogue thus far. Pilate, in order to try to get Jesus released, had, had tried to go to the Jews to say, Hey, I have a custom that I release for you, one of the prisoners at Passover. They choose Barabbas, who was a robber, an insurrectionist. Which leads us then up to chapter 19. He's made efforts to try to get Jesus released. It isn't happening. Okay, I'm putting before you two men. You have the insurrectionist Barabbas, or you have Jesus who is called the king of the Jews. Which one? This one is a murderer. This one is a robber. Well, we're going to have him because we don't like him. And so, in order for Pilate once again to try to calm the crowds, to satisfy their, their bloodlust, Pilate takes Jesus and has him scourged. Now, <clears throat> there are some differing views on this because there were three types of scourging that one could endure. One was more of a light beating that would be uh, more of a warning. Then you had the more severe one uh, that, was, that was truly a punishment, but not so severe to cause death. But then you had the third, which was the most severe beating, which was the precursor to crucifixion. So some theologians would look at this and say that Pilate is having Jesus scourged, but Pilate still has not agreed yet in order to have him crucified. So perhaps what Pilate has done has either had Jesus scourged concerning either the first type or the second type of beating because he's not intending on him dying. He wants to release him and he's going to show that. So perhaps Jesus endured the shameful beating either way you go. Most likely the second one, 
which was the more severe punishment in order to just satisfy them, satisfy their bloodlust. And then, uh, just as a footnote there, then theologians would say when Pilate does condemn him and then gives him over to be crucified, that he absolutely received the last beating, uh, the last type of beating, which was indeed the precursor to crucifixion. So it could have been at least two different occasions here that Jesus was beaten. One, in order to satisfy the crowds for his release, and the second, uh, to prepare for the crucifixion. But I want you to see here the mocking that has taken place of Jesus. Here is the King of Kings. Here is the Lord of glory. Here is the one who has spoken creation into existence by the word of his power. The one whose, whose throne is in the heavens. Who is the glorious one who is high and lifted up as Isaiah saw. And here is a man. He endures this scourging. A very shameful and humiliating beating. Not only was he beaten and, and, and then mocked. But they, they take a crown of thorns and they twist it and they put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. They, they hand him a reed. They're making fun of him. They're humiliating him even more so. And it's as if what you see here too is that the soldiers are taking out all their aggression and all their hate for the Jews on him. His charge is to be the king of the Jews. What can we do to him? And so it seems as if Jesus is enduring not only the hatred of the religious leaders, even though Pilate is trying to satisfy them, you see the, the violence that is coming at Jesus from the, the soldiers themselves because they hate the Jews. And here's one right in front of them. You know, this crown of thorns, depending on what kind of bush it was, uh, which there apparently is a lot of bushes in Palestine that have the thorns in them, it's possible that some of these thorns could have been up to 12 inches long depending on the bush. And they put it on his head, cutting down into his head, causing perhaps disfigurement on his face, depending on where it was put. They put a purple robe on him. The king of kings. They put a purple robe on him. They put a reed in his hand. And they each take turns, mocking him. And slapping him. Hail king of the Jews. And to give him slaps in the face. Which only further their humiliation. And the shame. You know Spurgeon had said. They mocked him. Before whom angels hid their face. And yet what you see. Is the willingness of Christ. To endure all of that. At any moment, as he had said to his disciples, at any moment he could have called 12 legions of angels. At any moment. But that was not the Father's will. And we can't pretend that he's not feeling what he is enduring here simply because we understand that he is God in the flesh. He is truly God. He is truly man. So everything that a man would feel, he is feeling. The physical pain of it all. And he endures it. Like uh, as Isaiah 53 says, as a lamb led to the slaughter, he doesn't open his mouth. He's, he's bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed, all of that. He is enduring it willingly 
You know, Psalm 22 says, speaking of Christ and his sufferings, he says, I am a worm and not a man. Why does he say that? Because here is the king of kings, the holy one, who is allowing his own creation to handle him in such a way as this. He's being treated as if he were a worm. He's not fighting back. He's not trying to get them to stop. He's not doing any of it. He, he, he's enduring it all. And he's doing it willingly. Because the whole point of everything is to get to the cross. Part of his humiliation for us is, is what we're seeing here. But the ultimate is on the cross. And that's where he is intending on going. And this is something that you see even though you have evil man working in all of this, doing exactly what they desire to do, yet they are fulfilling exactly what God intended for them to do. This is the road that Christ would travel. This is the way in which he would go, enduring slaps from his own creation, the very ones that he created, mocking their creator, slapping their creator, beating their creator. But at the same time, as we're seeing such, such shame and humiliation that is coming upon Christ on account of these evil men, at the same time, we have to recognize this because sometimes it maybe it wells up in us a little bit of anger just thinking of, of what these soldiers are doing. But at the same time, you have to understand that we probably would have done the same. If it weren't for the grace of God coming into our hearts and giving us eyes to see, we would be doing the same thing. This is man in his natural state at enmity with God. Because of the darkness of their hearts, they don't, they don't see. They don't understand who he really is. They just see a man who is claiming to be God, or claiming to be the king of the Jews, rather. The people that they hate. And they're able to take out their aggression on him. But all this is purposeful, at least in Pilate's mind. Because after this, this mockery, after this humiliation, after this beating, they put the crown of thorns on him. They've been mocking him, slapping him. They put a purple robe on him. Pilate then comes out and he says to them, I'm going to bring him out to you. I want you to see. And what he is trying to do, it seems as if he is trying to get the crowds to just to see him in, in this, this, this place of shame and humiliation that they would have pity on him. Pilate says again, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no fault in him. You know, this is, this is one of the, the main the main realities, the main truths that have been brought out throughout this whole ordeal is the innocence of Christ. If you hold your place here and just turn with me to a number of different places in your Matthew and Luke, we'll begin in Matthew chapter 27. <clears throat> How many times that the scriptures are testifying of Jesus' innocence? Matthew 27 <clears throat> Verse 4 is one of them. Actually, verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, 
saw that he had been condemned. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See that to yourself. He acknowledges that it, it, he, he knows that Christ is innocent. In the same chapter, in verse 19, this is Pilate's wife. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message to him saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him, acknowledging that he is that righteous man. In the crowds that were at the cross, in chapter 27, verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. In Luke chapter 23, Matthew records the testimony of, of Judas, of Pilate's wife, of the crowds there at the cross. In chapter 23, verse 41, or excuse me, verse 15, you have this that is said by Pilate, verse 15. No, nor has Herod. For, excuse me, start back at verse 13. That way we understand the context. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod. For he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Herod didn't find anything in him. Pilate doesn't find anything in him. Pilate's wife acknowledges that he's the righteous man. The centurions that were there at the cross acknowledging that he's the son of God. Judas understands he's betraying innocent blood. Chapter 23, verse 41. This is the thief on the cross. And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion who is at the cross, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. There are a number of testimonies that are given to us within the scripture expressing the innocence of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, him being the son of God by those who are his enemies, those that know him. Pilate himself has been saying this. He is innocent. I find no fault in him. There's no guilt in him. The religious leaders obviously can't find anything in him concerning how their trial went. But here they are. So Pilate, understanding that he is truly innocent and trying to appeal to the crowds. That you may know I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. He left it all on him. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Look, see the man who has been beaten and bruised, who has been mocked, having a crown of thorns on his head and a robe on him, mocking his kingship, his supposed kingship that you say that he's trying to incite rebellion. He was trying to appeal to the pity of the crowd. Look at this man. Surely this is not him. 
This is not the insurrectionist. Look at him. He can't do anything. Look at what we did to him. But his plan failed. His plan failed miserably. But you think of this, that even this Roman governor who hates the Jews is still trying to do, in one sense, the honorable thing when it comes to Christ. Even acknowledging that he is innocent, as so many more had done. And that's important to recognize that. That not even his enemies on the local level of the religious leaders of Israel to the leaders of, of Rome, people that are closest to him, that have betrayed him, none can bring any charges against him, which is very important for us to understand and to grasp the testimony of Scripture when it comes to this, because Christ was to be the spotless Lamb of God, the one in whom no sin was. For he is fulfilling exactly what the Passover lamb was to what the Passover lamb signified. And you think of the, the laws concerning the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 20. There were, they were to be no blemishes, no broken bones, nothing. And here you have Christ Jesus, who is the spotless lamb of God, and all even his enemies acknowledge the innocence, his innocence. It was necessary that the one who paid the penalty for us be without sin. And all the way to the end, Christ maintained his righteousness, his holiness. That's how the infinite, that's how the infinite debt was paid because of the spotless lamb of God. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Christ was the spotless lamb of God. It was necessary that he be righteous because it is going to be his righteousness and his perfection that is going to be imputed to those who call upon him in faith. That they might have a right standing with the Father because they are clothed in the righteousness of the Son. So he had to be the spotless Lamb of God. So all these testimonies that are given to us in Scripture only further that, that reality of who he is. So Pilate, trying to appeal to the crowd... To satisfy them with what has been done thus far to Jesus, his plan fails. The crowds, led by the chief priest and the officers, they cry out, Crucify, crucify. That's their response to seeing a beaten and battered Jesus, is to, We're not satisfied yet. Crucify him. We need him dead. Now, from their point of view, perhaps they're looking at it in the sense of, well, even after this, if he heals, he's still going to have some kind of a follower, uh, followers or some kind of a following and could still cause us trouble. We need him gone. So we need him to be crucified. 
And all this was, of course, within the sovereign hand of God, because just like with Stephen, if the Jews wanted to, they could have just drugged Jesus out of the out of the town and stoned him like they did Stephen. But this isn't the death that was meant for Christ. He would hang on the tree. As the scripture says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree and Jesus having the crown of thorns on his head, which is the signifying of the curse as when the fall had occurred and the earth brought forth thorns and thistles and Jesus is wearing the, the sign of the curse on his head. He's going to be lifted up to become a curse. This is the way that he is going. He's going to the cross. Pilate then says, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no fault in him. I still don't find any fault. Yep. Even though Pilate is going to give in to the crowds, we're going to know that we see that he's going to cower to them. He's going to give them what they want. At least in some sense, he was trying to do the honorable thing and trying to have him released and confessing at least three times that he's innocent. He knew that he had been handed over just because of the, the bitterness of the Jews toward Jesus. He had tried to come up with a plan, but he miscalculated the crowds. Only a cruel death will suffice the crowds that are there. <clears throat> you know, this interesting thing about this, this looking at this account is that this is one of the times, one of the first times that you see Christ literally and physically taking the place of another. You see how the crowds had first called for Barabbas. Barabbas being the actual insurrectionist, the murderer that the Jews were accusing Jesus of being. As one theologian was saying, perhaps Barabbas is in the fortress of Antonia, maybe 1,500 yards away or something from where this trial is going on. The only thing that they hear is crucify, crucify. He, maybe he, he hasn't been set free yet. But it's going to be Jesus that is going to take his place, actually, here. This is intended for Barabbas. And yet Jesus is going to take his place. He's going to be the one crucified on this day rather than the actual insurrectionist and murderer. The one whom the Jews probably held in high esteem because he was trying to throw off the Romans. But an innocent man's going to take his place, the innocent for the guilty. And that in itself from the very beginning is, is, a, is a picture of what Christ is doing for all who call upon him. He is taking their place. This is what you deserved. Instead, an innocent one is going to suffer. An innocent one's going to be condemned. Pilate is going to give in. Now, here's what one theologian says about this whole ordeal, this whole plan of Pilate in trying to satisfy the crowds and trying to have pity on Jesus. One, one writer says, The failure of Pilate's plan teaches us an important lesson. It takes more than human sentiment to bring a lost sinner to salvation. Regardless of what Jesus had suffered, it didn't matter. They wanted him dead. And he was going to die one way or the other, at least in their eyes. 
But this is, this is a great lesson for us, though. A good teaching moment for us. When it comes to trying to uh, have, have an unbeliever to have some kind of a pity or compassion toward what Christ has done. That was one thing that you see that was probably on, on the, the bad side, if you will, of, of movies and all of that that depict Christ in his life and his crucifixion and all of that. You take Maybe the Passion of the Christ is probably the most graphic uh, that depicts his beatings and all of this. And what is it that that does? It can pull on your heartstrings. You see a man who, who is being beaten so severely and when he does get the beating that is the precursor to crucifixion. It's, it's with you know, the, the cat of nine tails. It, it's, it's a whip that has a number of leather straps on it with bone and, and metal in it that will grab the skin and rip it off. I mean, Jesus did endure this very beating, and that's one thing that was so graphic about the Passion of the Christ. But what it didn't do was to depict what actually took place when it comes to the atonement of Christ, but it was able to pull on the heartstrings of people. And when you pull on the heartstrings of people while you have a good intent that you think that you have to melt their hearts, or you have to do something like that so that they would receive Christ, the only thing that it does is bring about false confessions, false professions of faith, getting them down... And having them to say a prayer because they saw how badly beaten somebody was or they heard about it or whatever. That's not what we are, are supposed to be doing when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to declaring what Christ has done. When it comes to declaring who he is. It is to tell the people... That yes, you are a sinner before God. You are guilty before God. But the good news is... That Christ Jesus has died that you may be set free. That's a simple, simple gospel. That's what we tell them. We don't, we don't try to pull on heartstrings. There's a number of writers who try to do that. And they're referred to as, as the sentimentalist. That's what, that's what their whole intent is to do. But that is not what changes a sinner's heart. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do this work that they could see who he really is. And come then to appreciate everything that he endured. The mocking that he endured. The King of Kings enduring this, this humiliation. And he's enduring this humiliation and all of this shame. And he's going to endure it even to a greater degree once he gets to the cross. So that he may redeem those whom the Father had given to him. He had a mission. And he was going to keep to the Father's will. Sentimentalism doesn't do anything, but obviously for the believers, as we see things like this, it does bring up great emotion in us. It does produce a greater love and a greater adoration for him as we recognize all that he has endured. The unbeliever, they get the gospel. They get the gospel Christ has died that you may have favor with God. Christ has died that you may be forgiven. But having been converted by the Holy Spirit of God, when we see this, then our heartstrings are pulled a little bit, and rightly so by the Spirit of God who has inspired this, that we may have greater love and adoration for Christ. Because, dear Christian, Christ endured these things and so much more before we'll get there eventually. But he endured these things here for you and me. 
He endured this mocking. You think of that. The one whom Isaiah sees is the one high and lifted up, and the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy. This is the one that John sees when he enters into heaven, having completed his work, and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy. And yet here's the same one as a man being slapped in the face, being spat upon, having his beard ripped out, having this severe beating, going through the mockery of a Jewish trial and then the Roman trial. And he's doing this in order to redeem his people, to redeem you and me. He's enduring it all, willingly. Understand that. Yes, the Father had sent Christ. And the Father's will is what Christ is carrying out. But the Father's will is also the Son's will because He's willingly coming Himself. You know, as R.C. Sproul says, only one man in history, only one innocent man in history has ever died. And He volunteered. There is so much more that Christ is going to endure. But let us take a few things away from this to one, see the glory of Christ in all of this. At any moment, he could have snapped his fingers. He could have said a word. But he endured this great humiliation. You see also what is necessary in order to bring people to faith is not sentimentalism. Let us not be guilty of that. Let us not change the gospel into something that it's not in order to think that we have to prepare someone's heart to receive the gospel. You can't do that. You can't prepare anybody's heart. No matter what you say, you cannot accomplish anything in the heart of anyone unless it is the Spirit of God who opens the heart. That's what's necessary. Otherwise, they will remain dead in their trespasses and sin. And they will be at enmity with God. It has to be the Spirit of God to do the work. Don't try to do the Spirit's work. You will fail. And it would only produce a greater anger and bitterness in the person who has either made the false profession or hearing these things. Because it's foolishness to them. It doesn't accomplish anything. Do you see that though? On a human level, we like to say, well, did I say the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? What else do I need to say? What can I come up with in order to you know, tear down their belief system or whatever I can try to do? And while apologetics is great and it's necessary, a lot of times what it's intended for is just to silence the other person. Silence the attacker on the Christian faith. It is a means by which we may give the gospel and all of that. But by doing that, you're not accomplishing anything in the heart of the person. Except maybe to get them to be quiet. It's the Spirit of God who does the work. He is the one who takes out their heart of stone, gives them a heart of flesh. He is the one that grants them faith. Only He can do this work so let us not fall into traps like this. There is so much more, of course, that 
Christ is going to endure all the shame and the humiliation. But recognize this as we begin here and we begin to move forward. That he is doing all of this willingly in order to glorify his father and redeem his people. And he's not going through all the pain and suffering that you may continue in sin. But to deliver you from sin. While while we recognize that. I do want to say this. We understand what we should be doing. We understand what we do do. We recognize that we do often the very things that we shouldn't be doing. Saying the wrong thing, thinking the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And passages like this or truths like this really you know, come upon us and hit us hard. Because yes, Jesus has delivered us from the dominion of sin that we may sin no more, etc., you know, to deliver us from the power of sin, but yet we, can, we continue to find ourselves still sinning. And sometimes that can be a great discouragement to us. A lot of times we can look at ourselves and say, how can I even be a believer? Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've said. But dear friends, this is why you don't look at yourself. This is why you look at him. The good news of the gospel is this. This is what he did. That's the good news. The good news isn't you have to. The good news is he did it. That's why you don't look at yourself. Because if you look at yourself. You're going to get even more discouraged. Recognizing your failures. Recognizing your shortcomings. How you sin so greatly against your king. That's why that quote from Luther. When I look at myself, I don't know how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't know how I can be lost. Don't look at yourself. But you look to him. That's where your assurance lies. So even though he's enduring these things in order that we may be delivered from sin. And yes, we strive to do right and we strive to do as best as we can. Understand, dear friends, you will fail. But your failure doesn't mean that you should continue in sin. But that you should fight even more against whatever it is that is trying to overcome you. And you look unto the author and the finisher of your faith, not yourself. I pray that in the coming weeks as we work our way through this, that that will become a greater reality to us and a greater encouragement to our hearts. Let's pray if you would. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this portion of your word. And thank you that we may behold exactly what Christ has endured. At least some of the things that we can grasp of what he endured. Never can we understand the full amount of shame and humiliation that Christ has endured. For he sat on his cosmic throne from all eternity. And then in the incarnation, he takes the form of a servant and becomes obedient unto death, enduring such humiliation. Truly, we can never understand the full degree of all that he went through. But help us as much as we can. To understand and let and let the spirit of God take that understanding and 
and motivate us even more so in order to to cling to him in faith, to do our best to please to please you. Not because of our salvation, or not to receive salvation, but because of our salvation, let us demonstrate the appreciation that we have by following in obedience. Help us, Lord. We need you every day. We need you every moment. But we fail so often. But thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh, Father, help us to see the, the truth of this passage and the ones to come in the coming weeks. Let us behold the glory of Christ, even in his humiliation. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen.